Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. <laughs> we are so excited today. We are going to do two gigantic projects from 1984. We are going to look at Prince's Purple Rain movie versus the Footloose movie. And then we're going to look at the Footloose soundtrack and the Purple Rain album. It's going to be a little bit tricky because we're going to try and stay distinct between all the projects. Here. In other words, we're going to want to talk about the music really, really bad when we're talking about the movies, but we are going to try our best to wait until it's album time to talk about the music. But since these movies are both so music-centric... It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, right. Okay, D, our executive producer today is one of my best friends in the entire world, Mr. Chris Bauer. Chris Bauer, thank you so much for subscribing through Patreon. We appreciate you and your uh, wonderful ideas. He's given us some stuff that I'm like, oh, we need to try to do that. Still the funniest guy I've ever met in my entire life. We used to call him Bomber in high school. So, Thank you, Bomber. Executive producer for this show, Bomber. Bomber, thanks, buddy. So remember that this is the summer of 1984 series. And as a reminder, these two albums were among the only five albums of the year to be a number one spot. Like we had Thriller. That got knocked out of its place by Footloose, the soundtrack. Then along came Huey Lewis and knocked it out. Which we've covered just recently, which was then knocked out by Bruce Springsteen. Born in the USA, which we compared to Huey Lewis. And then, of course, Bruce Springsteen was ultimately knocked out by Purple Rain. already done it i've already started talking albums but it's important to know that these albums wouldn't be the same without the movies oh absolutely and before we go too far down the road yeah you mentioned all the number one albums of 1984 yes purple rain took over in august and reigned supreme through the end of the year yes do you know the album that knocked it out of its number one spot no what was it it was born in the usa by bruce springsteen oh he made a comeback <laughs> nice well let's get into the movie shall we Yes, kick off your Sunday shoes, and here we go. You could fly if you'd only cut loose. Let's go, Footloose. Okay, so our story on Footloose starts back in the 19th century. I know, right? This is amazing. <laughs> so we have a unique circumstance here. We are guys who are recording from Oklahoma, and Elmore City was the inspiration for this movie, Footloose. Elmore City, Oklahoma is a small town. My son's high school football team has played Elmore City. Yeah, and when I was when I first started in the DA's office, Elmore City is in Garvin County, which is where I was. So I was very familiar with Elmore City. It was one of the cities that I had, and I didn't know until pretty far on in my career that, oh, hey, Elmore City is the inspiration for the movie Footloose. Had a girl who worked in the office, Cheryl, God rest her soul. She was from Elmore City. And then another guy that I've brought up 
several times who's been my friend for years now, Mr. Arlen Bullard, also grew up in Elmore City. Okay, that's fantastic. Okay, so Elmore City was founded back in 1898, and that is when they put the law into effect that there was no public dancing allowed in the city. It was religious-based. You'd still hear talk back in the 70s of, you know, if this is the Bible Belt, Elmore City is the buckle. Sure. Right? And so in the late 70s, some high schoolers, like they were freshmen at the time, they started saying, hey, you know, we don't want to just have a banquet. We want to have a prom. But you couldn't have a prom because public dancing was outlawed, right? Right. And so what they did was they did like a lawyer would do, and they, they worked their way around the law. It was this moment in the city council that there was some magic that was worked, but I can tell you this. The trick was the wording of the law said you couldn't have public dancing. So what they said was, well, how about we have a private dance? And the only way that they could do that was to go through the school. So the city council said, hey, if it's private, it's not against the law, do what you want to do. So unlike the movie where they had to go and fight the city council on this, what they had to do in real Elmore City was they had to fight the school board. The school board did not want to have a private dance. The their, the religious feelings were still strong in the 70s sure. and dancing could lead to you know, sex. Fornication, yes. Lusty desires. Absolutely. Right. (laughs) So there were a couple of people, Mary Temple Lee, whose dad was actually on the school board, and a guy named Leonard Coffey, who still works down at the, uh, at Rural Electric and Lindsay, which is a town near Elmore City, Uh and another guy named Rex Kennedy. And the character Wren is a combination of Rex and Leonard. It's those two guys. That's That's fantastic. Right? And then Mary Temple was kind of because her dad was on the school board. She's kind of that inspiration for the Ariel character. Wait, but, wait, 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 wait. Go ahead. Rex and Leonard Become. became Wren. Yes. Because I was thinking to myself, I'm watching Footloose and I'm like, Wren, cool name. Uh-huh. Never met anyone in my life named Wren. Uh, other than the partner of Stimpy. Yes. Wren no. and Stimpy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay. Rex and Leonard. Keep going. Okay. Okay. So this is the information that I got from Arlen. All right. So they actually started petitioning the school board a couple of years, like in like 1978 when they were freshmen. The way it works is the juniors were the ones that would host the prom for the seniors, but we want it to be in by the time we are seniors. And so this is the story that Arlen told me. His dad is a member of the school board. (laughs) It's a five-person school board, right? Okay, yeah. And so his dad is a member of the school board. And he says the first year that they came and petitioned, it was like unanimous, no, you cannot have a dance. They were not deterred. Next year, they came back. Okay. And it was like, Okay, one guy finally was like, okay, you know what? I don't care. They can have <laughs> Right. But the way it works is a five-person board and the like the head, the guy who is Mary Temple's father, he doesn't vote unless he has to be there for a tie break. And so second year, three to one. Nope. So, yep. Yep. No dance that year. Third year comes along and another guy falls off and says, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say that it's okay that they have a dance. And so Arlen has this wonderful story of his dad being one of the only two holdouts <laughs> to say, heck no, I don't want to let him go dance. So they have a two to two matchup, right? Two have voted yes, let him dance. Two have voted no. 
And who is the tiebreaker? It's Mary Temple's father, Raymond Temple Lee. And he says, let them dance. I thought this was a party. Let's dance. All right. That's fantastic. So there's a great news story that came out in 1980, and that spawned so much interest that there ended up being a People magazine article. It was in several different magazines, just this, hey, this, you know, hick town finally said, let the kids dance. And so it made a lot of national news. And that is what inspired our dear friend, Mr. Mr. Dean Pitchford to write a movie. That is great story. Great story. So- Tell me about Dean Pitchford. Okay. Well, so here's what I know about Dean Pitchford. Dean Pitchford is a guy who was born in Hawaii. You know, he was an actor, a singer, a dancer. In 1971, he was cast in a play called Godspell in New York City. Yep. And so he goes to New York City and he he starts to kind of rise in the ranks right there. Yep. He actually got cast by uh, Bob Fosse, who we've talked about before. Yeah, yeah. And he was cast as Pippin in the Broadway production of Pippin by by Bob Fosse. Okay, okay. Well, this is a guy who's been in tons of commercials, right? Yeah, like like mainstream commercials. Yeah. Like Dr. Pepper and M&M's <laughs> and like Lay's potato chips, McDonald's. Yeah. Okay. So he was kind of this upcoming star, right? I wonder if he was in the singing McDonald's commercial with John Amos. That would be fantastic. Mop in a bucket, baby. <laughs> So he starts working with other songwriters and he gets invited to help sort of write these songs for this movie called Fame. I'm gonna live forever. That's his. So he writes three songs. He he and this uh, this other guy whose name I didn't write down. <laughs> uh, Michael. That guy's name is Michael Gore. Okay, so he and Michael Gore, they collaborate on three songs for the movie Fame. Now, one of them is called Red Light, one of them is I Sing the Body Electric, and one of them is Fame, the song that everyone knows from Irene Cara. Listen to it right here. Grammy, it won him a Oscar and it won him a Golden Globe. So not bad. Yeah. So he gets together with a guy named Kenny Loggins and another guy named Steve Perry. Wait, 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 wait. Kenny Loggins and Steve Perry. Yes. Together again for the first time. Not Loggins and Mistina. <laughs> Just Kenny by himself and not Journey, but Steve Perry by himself. And they write a song called Don't Fight It, which ends up being a top 20 hit, also Grammy nominated. And he co-wrote the theme song for Solid Gold. (laughs) (laughs) Solid Gold was a TV show I used to watch. Oh, yeah, I mean, for sure. it's, it's kind of like a B substitute for MTV, you know? Right. Hey, you know, he wrote a song for Melissa Manchester. People have kind of forgotten this one over. It's kind of been buried in the course of time. Uh-huh. But it was a big hit, and it's one I know very well. It's called You Should Hear How She Talks About You. Yeah, for me, that's a little kid top-down turn-up song. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So he reads the story about Elmore City, Oklahoma in the People magazine. He goes down and he talks to some of the folks down there and gets this idea for a script. And so what, what Arlen told me is that he believes that the character of Preacher was inspired by this guy named Larry Kern. 
And Arlen said Larry was just the nicest guy in the world. Like he wanted to take care of everybody, was looking out for everybody, just the best guy. But he was somebody who was preaching against dancing from the pulpit, right? Yeah. That like that every preacher in town was at that point. And he said he said that his wife was even nicer than he was. Like she would just love on every human being like it was her own child. They had this kid that was kind of close to Arlen's age that had a pig in the <laughs> in the 4H competition. Yes. And, and they would they called the pig Chip because they would feed Chip chocolate chip cookies and Chip did fantastic in the 4-H, and then poor Mrs. Larry Kern cried her eyes out when the competition was over, and Chip became bacon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hey, listen, one thing we want to be real clear and real gentle about, these are salt-of-the-earth people. I think the movie does a really good job of respectfully talking about these are solid people with morals, mm-hmm. not against people that don't have morals, but these are two people with differing philosophies, but they're both good people. You know, they're all good people. Well, I mean, let's, I mean, to be frank, when I watched this movie, when I was a kid, I despised, I thought I despised the Reverend leader. I did not like John Lithgow's character as a grown man. And I'm not, you know, I, I certainly don't mind dancing, but as a grown man watching this, I'm like, he actually was really trying to do what he thought was best for these people. He wasn't like, he wasn't this, mustache twirling villain he was somebody who was trying to do what was right and was moved by a very impactful moment in his life so we can get into that here in a little bit but but it's important to note that yes this this story was based on real people and those real people were not bad people No, absolutely not. So Pitchford writes the screenplay for the movie that will become Footloose. He collaborates on nine songs with Kenny Loggins, Eric Carmen, Jim Steinman, Sammy Hagar. We have talked about nearly all of these guys. I believe we have talked about every single one of them, yes. Maybe not Eric Carmen, but... Yeah, we, <laughs> one of these days when we, we talk will. about Dirty Dancing, his name's going to come up. <laughs> you know, and that's an interesting point. You know, we when we originally talked about doing Footloose, we talked about comparing it to Dirty Dancing because it's kind of the guy-girl perspective on these two, right. you know, forbidden dance movies. Yeah. But I really like the way that we fell out and landed on this versus Purple Rain. Yeah, me too. So he writes the script and the film lands with film director Herb Ross. Now, we talked about the fact that Dean Pitchford was a song and dance man. I mean, he was singing and dancing and acting. Herb Ross also started off as a dancer, turned choreographer, turned Broadway director, turned film director. Yeah. He directed a bunch of Neil Simon stuff, I Ought to Be in Pictures. He directed Pennies from Heaven, had Steve Martin in it. He directed Max Dugan Returns, which we talked about. Yeah, Matthew Broderick's first first movie. movie. Yes. And then he has his first really huge hit with Footloose. Okay, so here's the deal with Herbert Ross. So he's directing Footloose, he's in charge, and he's getting it ready, and he's picking locations, and he's involved in the casting, and everything's happening. Well, he gets a call from Warren Beatty, and Warren Beatty says, hey, I like what you've done. Why don't you come and direct my movie called Mermaid? So he leaves Footloose. When Herbert Ross gets to the set of Mermaid, Uh he realizes that he's not really wanted to be the director. Warren Beatty wants to direct the movie. Okay. And so it's one of those where there's too many chiefs and, you know, 
Uh-huh. And he realizes that, man, this is not good. And in the meantime, Footloose hires a guy named Michael Samino. And when he comes on board, this is the guy who directed The Deer Hunter uh-huh. and Heaven's Gate. Yeah. So, but he takes over, he starts to try to take it down a darker path and he wants to change it all up, rewrite the entire script. And so they said, listen, this is not working out. So they, they let him go. Well, in the meantime, Herbert Ross leaves Mermaid. Mermaid. Not the Little Mermaid, Mermaid. Right. Different and, Ariel. <laughs> different Ariel. Good. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. So he calls Dean Pitchford and he says, listen, I want to come back. Uh-huh. And they're like, come on back. Good timing. We just fired the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> so Herbert Ross comes back and takes over Footloose. Right. Let's flip over to the inspiration and the beginnings of Purple Rain. <laughs> Now, if you haven't caught our Sign of the Times episode, we do some history on Prince. Yeah. We're not going to go revisit that. If you want to hear it, go listen to that episode. It's pretty darn good if I do say so myself. (laughs) (laughs) But I got to dive a little bit deeper. I read a couple of books on Prince, one called The Beautiful Ones, which I encourage everybody to take out. A guy who basically had no qualification to write a book that Prince handpicked to write a book. Unfortunately, he picked him about three months before he passed away, tragically. So that's an interesting one. It's called The Beautiful Ones. And then a book called Let's Let's Go Go Crazy. Crazy. Yeah, I read Let's Go Crazy. It's written by a guy named Alan Light. Yeah. And lots of inside information, lots of tidbits. If you're a Prince fan, you definitely want to pick this one up. So in our old episode on Sign of the Times, I talked a little bit about Prince being inspired by getting to see James Brown yeah. on stage, right? Yes. So I think... His stepdad, I, I think, took him. Yeah, yeah. So there's three, there's like those three imprint moments that people have in their lives sometimes. And so first imprint moment for Prince is seeing his dad, Prince Rogers Nelson. That was his stage name. See him, seeing his dad in a recording studio where he's got all these chairs and the lights are on him and he's got these beautiful girls dancing behind him. That's inspiration point number one. Inspiration point number two is after his parents end up divorced and his mom remarries, his stepdad takes him to see James Brown. It's rumored that he actually got went to go and dance on stage a little bit, which is how he got to see see stuff going on backstage with the, again, pretty girls. Right. And then this is a fascinating one for me. He and his father did not get along especially well, but he got along better with his dad than he did with his mom once they had been divorced. Okay. And so at some point he says to mom, Hey, I'm going to go live with dad. I can't handle stepdad anymore. I can't handle you anymore. I'm going to go live with him. And so he's living with him. And at some point he says, they're having Woodstock. And I really want to go. And his dad says, I'll take you. Really? Yes. Wow. And so it's, you know, they, but his dad, one of the things that you got to know about his dad is that he's hyper religious, right? That was the big conflict between Prince's mom and his dad is that his mom wanted to go out and have a good time and party and do crazy stuff. She wanted to go crazy and, <laughs> and his dad wanted her to be there and taking care of things and not living this wild, crazy lifestyle. And that led to their abusive relationship. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Yeah, so what you're saying is he's a little bit like his mother. She's never satisfied. Uh-huh. And he's a little bit like his father. Too bold. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, that, that bomb. Okay. 
Well, that was what I was leading up to. Yes. Oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Keep going. And so he can still, you know, uh, sorry, I lost my train. Sorry. Sorry. No, that's all right. So his dad being this ultra religious guy, they got to go to church on Sunday, like, and the, the concerts over the weekend. So he's like, no, and he's only going to get to go to the last day. And so he's like, why is church taking so long today? You know, it's long anyway, right? Right. It's always If you went to church in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, you know that church went way longer than it ever should have, <laughs> right? And so it's taking an extra long time today, and then they have to go home and change clothes, and he's just, you know, jumping up and down next to the car, but his dad takes him out there, and he gets to see Jimi Hendrix and wow. Stone and it, third imprint moment of his life. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Cool. By the way, on the Jimi Hendrix note, Jimi Hendrix's most famous song? Purple Haze. Uh-huh. The purple one. The purple one. There you go. Which also appears in the end of I Want a New Drug. Yeah. Flashback Huey Lewis. Yep. Yep. Okay, so junior high and high school come around for Prince. He grows up in Minneapolis, yeah. and he forms his own band. This band is called Grand Central. Yep. Okay, Prince is out front. He's got this drummer behind him. Yeah. His name is Morse Day. I've heard of that guy. Have you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were a cover band. Um, later on, he changed up the band. They started doing original stuff. But yes, it's interesting to note Morris Day was the original drummer for Prince's very first band. Like their high school band. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I could play drummer with Prince and you know you could. Okay. <laughs> Let's skip that. Okay. Um, so he he obviously goes on. We talked about this in our past episode. Yeah. He gets himself a record deal. He makes sure that he's producing. He demonstrates that he's got the chops to play all the instruments and produce. And his first album doesn't really do that great. Right. But one of the singles off of that first album is Soft and Wet. Yes. Which he releases on his 20th birthday. So that song made an imprint for a couple of other folks. One of them's name is Wendy Melvoin. Wendy was 13. She said, I can remember the day. I'm 13. I'm underage in this dance club in LA. And I hear the song soft and wet start playing. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I run over to the DJ and I'm like, who is this girl? Who is this girl? (laughs) She's like, that moment is a vivid memory for me, and I became a huge Prince fan. So this is long, long before they ever meet, but that seed is planted and impactful in her life. The other person that it imprinted was Susan Rogers, who was also, she was in West Hollywood. She's on a bus, and she hears this boombox coming from the back. See, some kid in the back of the bus has his boombox playing soft and wet, and she's like, I've got to know more about who this guy is. And of course, she goes on to be the producer of a huge body of his work. Yeah, we talked about her in our Sign of the Times episode. Yep. Okay, so the other thing about that first album, though, is it was a part of a three-record deal that he had signed, right? Right. And they had given him $180,000 to record those first three albums, and he spent 170 of it on the first album. Oh. Yeah. And so he's not doing too well. You know, it wasn't <laughs> as big a success. Even though it influenced those girls, it wasn't a big success for him. His management gets bought out by these guys named Bob Cavallo and Joe Ruffalo. Buy it out for $50,000. Cavallo and Ruffalo managed Earth, Wind, and Fire and 
Ray Parker Jr., who came up last episode, if you'll remember. Yep. And one of the guys they had working for him was a guy named Steve Fargnoli, and he was just an employee at the time, but he had worked with Sly and Family Stone, which Prince was a huge fan of, and so they hit it off. And so Steve Fagnoli became like Prince's day-to-day business manager. Okay. And eventually became partners with Cavallo and Ruffalo. So this is early 80s by this time, and we've almost reached a pinnacle point, and that is the album 1999. So most people are familiar with 1999. He had had some success off of Dirty Mind and Controversy, but 1999 is really where he came into the mainstream, right? Right. So he had the big hit, 1999. Well, maybe. Like when it first got released. When it first came out, right. It didn't really do that well. It's crazy. And then he puts out Little Red Corvette. And that blows up. Little Red Corvette blows up. And so they re-release 1999, and that's when... And then that blows up. Yeah. I remember sitting, like, riding my school bus to... Like the yellow bus to school, uh-huh. not the short one, the long one. <laughs> Riding to school, yeah. hearing the song 1999 and uh-huh. going, wow, in the year 2000, I'll be, tw- you know, 27. And I think I've talked about it before, but I remember very vividly seeing the video for Little Red Corvette the first time. It was when we were driving out to California in 1983. Yeah, yeah. To where I watched all the booby movies. Um <laughs> But on, it, on on the hotel stop along the way, the TV they had in the hotel had MTV, turned it on. There was Prince singing Little Corvette, dancing his boots off over Des Dickerson's guitar yep. solo. Yeah. So he's had some success. Yeah. But he's not really like movie star material. Right. But he comes to the end of this three record deal uh-huh. and he goes to Bob Cavallo yeah. and he says, I want you to get me into a movie. Right. Bob Cavallo's like, we've made you. Like we, we, we're a big part of why you are successful with 1999 and now you're going to give us ultimatums like I've got to get you in a movie. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, yeah, I'm not signing another be- deal until you get me a movie. And he's like, I don't want to be one of your, you know, mafia kind of deals. He's like, mafia? Listen, man, I owned a nightclub. I went to Georgetown <laughs> University, okay? I'm, I'm not mafia. <laughs> I read an article where Matt Fink, doc- uh-huh. Dr. Fink, the keyboardist, is like talking to Prince saying, are you sure we're big enough to do this? They're not. Yeah, they're, they're not. They are not. I mean, if it's you look crazy. at it back then, it doesn't make any sense other than Prince is Prince and he's just determined to do it. And so Prince had this little notebook that he would write in and I've seen it I, in the beautiful ones if you want to go check out that book, you can look at every single notebook page where Prince has written out the story of Purple Rain. So here's the first lines that he writes. This is the story of the dreams and aspirations of three individuals. And then he goes on to introduce Morris Day, Vanity, and the Kid. Yeah. You read the story and he's got the story mapped out. Now it is darker. His story is darker. And one of the fantastic parts about the darkness of the story is his parents are already dead in a murder-suicide, right? Yes. And so he will have these flashbacks to the fights that his parents were having. And in his flashbacks, he is the person playing the part of the father and the mother. Like it's <laughs> he sees himself as father and he sees himself as mother. And yes, go ahead. So maybe he's just like his father. Like my father. Too bold. Yeah. Maybe he's just like his mother. She's never satisfied. 
Bob Cavallo says, okay, I'll see what I can do, right? So they bring in this guy named William Blinn. Yes. He wrote for the TV show Fame. Yes. So both of these movies have roots in fame. Correct, yes. Okay. All right, everybody, I just want to formally invite you to come over and listen to our side project, Podcast Full of Kryptonite, with Mr. John Reed from the 30-something movie podcast, and of course, you and me, Dee. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, we are the Super Friends. That's right. We cover the TV show Superman and Lois. We go over every episode. We have a great time, and John knows so much about Superman. It's amazing. If you love Superman, or even if you don't, and you just want to learn more, come check it out. And if you haven't watched Superman and Lois yet, you need to right now crawl out of your fortress of solitude and turn the tv on <laughs> podcast full of crypt today so william blinn says okay i'll meet with him we'll talk about some stuff so he sits down with prince prince didn't talk very much he's naturally a very shy person yeah. which is strange when you see him on stage and he's sizing you up I've, if, if i've learned anything on these first meetings that he has with people he's sizing them up well and he does stuff to intentionally piss you off and and mess with you yes, yes. for sure so they tease out some stuff about the murder suicide with his mom and dad yep. they just kind of get an outline uh-huh. and so william blinn says okay i'll go away and i'll work on this and he comes back so he keeps calling prince saying hey i've got some ideas we need to get together and write uh-huh. and prince keeps like not just putting him off but Ghosting. making appointments yeah canceling ghosting him, dodging him. So he finally gets him. So he says, look, we got to get together. The prince says, okay, well, let's go see a movie. So he's like, fine, let's go see a movie. So they go see a movie. They sit down. 20 minutes in, Prince gets up and walks out. <laughs> <laughs> so William Blinn is like, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. I'm done with this. Well, Prince calls him later and is like, well, what's the problem? <laughs> you know? And he's like, man, what, what are you talking about? I can't, do, I can't work this way. And so Prince says, look, I'm sorry. Basically talks him into coming back. Right. So William Blaine comes back. He works on the screenplay. And when he turns it in, it's called Dreams. Dreams, yeah. That based was- on that first sentence that he wrote on, on Purple Rain. Right. So they've got the writer, but they don't have a director. Right. And Cavallo is like, he's got at least a little bit of experience. And, you know, he's done some movie work in the past, but not much. Right. But he keeps sending it to director after director and they keep turning him down. And he's getting frustrated. And so he ends up going to screen this movie of maybe a potential director. And the movie is called Reckless. Yeah. So he sits down to watch this movie Reckless. It has Aidan Quinn and Daryl Hannah. It's this kind of James Dean type of film noir movie from the early 80s. By the way, Daryl Hannah was one of the potential aerial possibilities. That's cool. Yeah. Put loose. So he sits down to watch this movie. He's the only one in the theater. Mm-hmm. He watches Reckless just to take a break, gets up. And as he's walking out, this young guy comes up to him and says, well, what do you think? And he's like, I, you know, I mean, it's okay. I mean, it was, you know, it was edited well. I mean, it's all right, you know. And the kid's like, I I did that. That was me. I'm the editor. (laughs) Right. Right. So the kid's name is Albert Magnoli. Right. So this guy is fresh out of USC film school. Yeah. He had, he had done well. Like he had, he had directed a short film that actually won a student Oscar, whatever that is. But he literally is wet behind the ears as far as the film industry goes. This is his first experience in film. And he was the editor. And the movie's not that great. Right, right. <laughs> so Cavalli's talking to him. He's like, well, it was edited well. It seems pretty impressive. How would you like to be associated with Prince's motion picture project? Yeah. And he's like, fantastic. I'm a huge fan. I would love to be involved. The director of Reckless, he would love to direct and we'll edit and it'd be fantastic. Yeah, fully. 
Uh, James Foley, James Foley. Was, the, was the director. By the way, side note, written by Chris Columbus. Get out. Nope. I'm serious. Like it was, it came out just before Gremlins. So it technically was Chris Columbus's first produced wow. script. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so James Foley, he's like, I'm excited to work with James Foley again. So he calls up James Foley to go, hey, I've got this uh, guy who wants to put us on the Prince movie. And, and James Foley's like, who's Prince? <laughs> <laughs> Making a movie about a guy where directors are saying, who's Prince? That tells you what's going on. I mean, James Foley's an old guy, right? I mean, <laughs> he's been directing a lot of movies that were much older than this. But he's like, okay, let me just, you know, let me get the script for you and you can read it. And so he gets uh, the script. He sends it over to James Foley. James Foley calls him back the next day. He's like, have you read this? This is terrible. <laughs> I am not going to make this movie. Yeah. So Albert Magnoli goes back and conveys this information to Bob Cavallo and Bob like throws a fit. He's like, what the heck? You know, what am I doing wrong? I, you know, it's just rejection after rejection. Yeah. I, I, I think I know what I'm doing. And, and he's like, well, you know, um, I could take a look at it and yeah. How about bingo, me? Bongo bango. Yeah. Right? Good for him. And so he comes back and there's a couple, it's the story is varied here. But he's like, hey, you know, I'll pay you $75,000 to direct this movie. And Albert Magnoli's like, nope. And he's like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> yes. He's like, are you serious right now? And he's like, okay, well, I'm not going to direct it the way that it's written. Here's my idea. And he says, what the way he puts it is, remember the end scene of The Godfather? Yeah. And it's not really the end scene. It's a mid scene. But the, the baptism scene for those Godfather fans out there where you're seeing Michael Corleone getting his child baptized. And while all of that's happening, hits are happening from person to person. And he says it's going to be that kind of same like musical underlying thing, which by the way, that was what tied that scene together. Like Francis Ford Coppola was about to kick that scene, but the music guy was like, why don't you put an like organ music over the top of all of this? And that's what made this scene such an impactful scene. Yeah. And so he says, what we're going to do for the intro to Purple Rain is that same idea. We're starting with the song and the song is going on while we're introducing all of our characters in these shot-by-shot presentations. We see Morris Day pimping up and getting ready to come out of his house. We see Prince on stage lighting up the crowd, and we see Apollonia coming out of the taxi, fresh into the city, and sneaking carefully into the nightclub. She uh, she bails on the cab driver and uh, races off to go try to get in first half. Yeah, and he won't let her. He's like, she's like, I have a meeting with the manager. And he's like, the manager doesn't have meetings. You're four. Yeah. And she's like, oh. And he gets distracted and she runs in the door. Bolts in. Beautiful. And yeah. it's a great, it's a great That opening scene. scene is fantastic. I mean, you're right. You get introduced to all three characters. You know who they are. You know what they're doing. And the song is phenomenal. Absolutely. But we can't get into it yet. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> Before all of this happens, obviously, sure. while they're still preparing, they bring Albert Magnoli over to talk to Prince for the first time. And as far as Prince knows, like the idea is this is a new director. And so he's not going to be any trouble and he's going to shoot the script the way that the script is written. And so when they sit down to dinner for the very first time, Prince is like, so what do you think about the script? And Albert Magnoli is like, I hate it. Uh, I don't want to shoot that movie. I would like to shoot a different movie. And he's a very excited, like animated guy. And he launches into what his story idea is for the movie and goes through all of it. And Prince is like, everybody leave. And I was like, oh, crap. 
And so like everybody leaves and he's like, you come with me. And they get in the car and Prince is driving silently with Magnolia in the car. And he's just like, what the heck? what's going on here? And then they take this exit, like into this pitch black, you know, middle of the downtown, you know, who knows what's going on. Prince parks the car and he's like, what do you know about me? And he's like, what? He goes, what have you learned about me? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, listen, you just told my life story in 10 minutes and I want to know how you know it. <laughs> and Albert Magnolia was like, it's just the story that I had. And that is how he became the for sure director of this movie. I thought you were getting ready to tell me that he made him purify himself in the waters <laughs> of Lake Manitaka. <laughs> uh, probably. That's a fantastic story. So I've got this funny little nugget. This is so cringeworthy. I can barely get it out of my mouth. Okay. okay. So when the executives are getting together to discuss the production of Purple Rain, there's this guy named Mark Kenton, who is a Warner Brothers executive VP at the time. Uh And he's sitting in this meeting and he makes the comment that, you know, I kind of can get behind this movie Purple Rain. I don't think Prince is big enough. How about uh, about John Travolta? (laughs) I'm like, Uh what? Yeah, they bail. They're like, this is exactly why we didn't want to do this in Hollywood. We knew this crap would happen. And he, they bail and they call him back and they're like, we're sorry, come back. We'll, we'll be good. We promise. And so that's, that's but it was, it's something, it's interesting that at that point, despite the fact that they had all kinds of odds against them, I mean, not that famous yet shooting in Minneapolis of all places, no veteran actors in the winter. Yeah, no veteran actors in the movie and a pretty thin script and a brand new director. This movie should not have seen the light of day. And if it did see the light of day, it should not have been a success. But it was. Well, it's because we all didn't realize who Prince was until Purple Rain. Okay, so at this point, let's flip back to Footloose and talk about casting. Sounds great. Okay. Before we do that, though, I wanted to to make mention, Footloose was originally called Cheek to Cheek. Yeah. That sounds like an old 40s, like Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers. Cheek. Yeah. Kick off your Sunday shoes. Uh, uh, No, no. I don't think so either. But, I mean, really, that was just kind of a working title until they came up with Footloose and Fancy Free. Right. And then they just, you know, shortened it down to Footloose, and it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. So, casting. Okay. Yep. So they almost got Tom Cruise as Ren McCormick. And if if you're forgetting that scene from Risky Business that we all watched in 1983, where he dances in his underwear, he might have been a phenomenal Ren. I think he could have been great. I mean, Tom Cruise, one of the biggest movie stars of all time. But he's almost too pretty for the part, right? And you know who else was also pretty and almost the guy too? Uh, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe pulled something, like injured himself and couldn't do the dances anymore. His ACL. (laughs) So listen to this. So they bring in Tom Cruise. Yep. He convinces them, I can do this dancing, which I'm not sure that Tom Cruise could do the dancing, but, you know, good enough, I guess. Sure. So Tom Cruise was shooting all the right moves. He had bulked up to play a football player. Yep. And there was some, you know, additional scenes that they had to shoot and stuff like that Uh and would have delayed production on Footloose. They only had a small window of time. So even though they wanted Tom Cruise, they couldn't really take the chance on the movie not getting made at all. Right. So they bring in Rob Lowe and he shows off and looks good, of course, and hugely charismatic actor of our time. Yeah. And he hurts his ACL, injures it where he can't dance, can't do it. So they carry him off and they're like, he's out. 
Right. So they start looking around. Christopher Adkins, the guy from the Blue Lagoon. Okay. Almost got the part. And some say he did get the part, but he showed up high on the set one day. Right. And so they said, I don't think that's a good idea. So they're bouncing around on who to play Red. They go to a screening of the movie Diner. Right. Which stars Kevin Bacon. Now, Kevin Bacon, we've talked about before because like one of the first things we wanted to do was do the, you know, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon because he's become that guy. But back in 1983, when they're putting this movie together, he really hadn't been in much. Right. He was in National Lampoon's Animal House, but that was 78. Yeah. And so he hadn't done a whole lot since then. In 80, he was in Friday the 13th. Yeah. Um, he gets a spear through the throat. Right, right. <laughs> he was doing some stage work, and in 82, he ended up winning an Obie Award for 40 Deuce and was in a Broadway play called Slab Boys with a couple of guys who were unknown at that time as well, named Sean Penn and Val Kilmer. Wow. Right. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, and so he ends up from that getting this part in Barry Levinson's diner. And he's acting with Steve Gutenberg, Daniel Stern, Mickey Rourke, Tim Daly, and Ellen Barkin. <laughs> so they go see the movie and they like him. Yeah. They think he's got the right charisma, the good sort of all-American sort of neutral look yep. that they're looking for. Right. And they're like, well, great. Let's find out if he can dance. Uh-huh. So they call his agent and say, can he dance? She says, no. <laughs> she says, no. What kind of agent are you? <laughs> You're supposed to get me jobs. <laughs> the answer is yes. No. Whatever it is, it's yes. So she says no. And they say, well, not even a little. Like, could we teach him? And they're like, no, he can't dance at all. So they're like, man, back to the drawing board. So they're, they're fretting and thinking and looking around. They can't find Wren. And Dean Pitchford has a conversation with, with somebody. And he's like, I just can't find Wren. And the person says, independently, without this knowledge, says, well, have you thought about Kevin Bacon? And he says, well, yeah, well, we thought about it, but he can't dance. He's like, what are you talking about? I was at a party last night. He's dancing his rear off the whole time. <laughs> and he's like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah. So they go and they rekindle those conversations with Kevin Bacon. Yeah. And the only problem is at this point, Kevin Bacon gets cast as the lead role in Christine, the Stephen King car movie. Car movie, yes. And so he gets this lead role and then they offer him a screen test for Footloose. So the producers have to convince him it's smarter to turn down this sure thing lead role just to be in an audition for our maybe movie. That's remarkable. Yeah. And so he does it. And 30 seconds into the audition, they said, you're our guy. And the only problem is one of the studio producers for Paramount, Sherry Lansing, who is an, uh, she's a icon as far as producers go, like first woman to do a hundred thousand things in Hollywood. But she's like, he's not sexy. I'm not putting him in this movie. And they're like, what? We just convinced him to drop a sure thing role. He's our guy. And she's like, nope, not doing it. Not sexy. So her Ross for like weeks has to convince her that he's sexy. And so he does screen test after screen test after screen test. And finally she's like, okay, fine. So the screen test. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. I thought this was remarkable. So they, they go and they get him some high fashion 1984 clothing. Uh-huh. They dress him up. They gave him a $1,500 haircut. Kevin Bacon's like, what? Well, what? <laughs> 1500 bucks in 1983, they get the guy that's like haircut guy of the stars. Right. And they want to make him look like... Sting. Sting. Yeah. Flashback to our synchronicity episode. Yep. And they set the screen test to beat it by Michael Jackson. Oh, perfect. So he's dancing around with the Sting haircut, with his high fashion clothes. <laughs> and that's when they were like, okay, yeah. he's it. Did, was he wearing a skinny tie? <laughs> 
Probably. And here's the deal. They had already agreed that if they don't cast Kevin Bacon, we are not making this movie. Oh, wow. It was a do or die. That's awesome. Everything was on the line. All in. So we've got our male lead. Now we need our ingenue, right? We need our young Ariel. Yes. So Lori Singer is the person that ended up getting the role. Madonna mm-hmm. auditioned for this. Yeah. Daryl Hannah. Was she in that mermaid movie that you were talking about earlier? Yes, it was. <laughs> Not that mermaid. She was in a different mermaid movie oh, called okay. Splash. Daryl Hannah almost got the part. Jennifer Jason Lee almost got this part. Haviland Morris. If you've ever seen 16 Candles, Elizabeth McGovern, Melanie Griffith was interested. Michelle Pfeiffer was interested. Nice. Jamie Lee Curtis, Meg Tilly, Heather Locklear, <laughs> Brooke Shields, Diane Lane, Lori Laughlin, Phoebe Cates, all considered. So Lori Singer, her dad was a conductor and she was a musical prodigy. She debuted as a cellist with the organ symphony when she was 13 years old and then got accepted to Juilliard where she became like her, the youngest graduate from Juilliard. And then she decides, Hey, I'm going to do some modeling. And the modeling turns into getting cast in this TV series that we just mentioned a couple times called fame. It all goes back to fame. She plays the part of Julie Miller, who is a teenage dancer and cellist from 1982 to 1983. And that is what gets her in front of them to be our Ariel. Fantastic. Okay. You mentioned Sean Penn earlier. Yep. The part of Willard goes to Chris Penn, Sean Penn's brother. Yep. The funny thing about this, he cannot dance. Not at all. Not a lick. Not a bit. Like <laughs> Kevin Bacon was said not to dance. He really can't dance. Like Kevin Bacon said that he showed up to the dancing class with a cigarette in one hand and a Pepsi in the other was trying to do the dances. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, um, could you put that out? <laughs> he was 17. Oh, wow. 17. Yeah. Which, by the way, I think Kevin Bacon was 24 when he did this. Right. In 78, he's playing a college kid. And in 84, he's playing a high school kid. (laughs) The fact that he couldn't dance was made a part of the movie. That's great. And it's possibly the best part of the movie. I mean, it's, it's iconic that time that they're training him, the montage scene where they're teaching him how to dance. I mean, that's huge. That's a huge part of the whole storyline. And I think it's huge because for guys like me who yeah. can't dance, yeah. there's somebody in the movie that I can relate to and be a part of and take the ride with. Yep. Okay. So we've got our male lead. We've got our female lead. We've got our best friend. And now we need our quotation marks villain. And so for that part, we have John Lithgow. Here's what I know about that part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Dean Pitchford went and saw this play on Broadway called Beyond Therapy. Okay. And that starred John Lithgow and Diane Weist. And Dean Pitchford loved their chemistry on stage together. Uh And he's like, I got a perfect thing. We'll get both of those as the preacher and his wife. Brilliant. And I I didn't realize what a stud John Lithgow is. I mean, beyond the fact that, you know, Harry and the Hendersons and Third Rock from the Sun and World of the Yeah. I mean, all of those movies, obviously. But he graduated from Harvard with an A.B. magna cum laude. What? He got a Fulbright scholarship and he had a chance to go to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. From there, he went to train in New York stage, beginning a distinguished career on Broadway. In 73, he got his first Tony Award. And then in 79, he was cast in one of his 
earliest screen roles, all that jazz by our friend Bob Fosse. Real quick on Diane Weist. Yes. She does a wonderful job of being strong, but sort of in the background, Uh supporting her husband, supporting her daughter, and doing what's right. Diane Weist, flashback to our Lost Boys episode. Yep. She's almost unrecognizable preacher's wife. Yep. Okay. One more quick one I want to talk about real quick before we move on. Yeah. Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. Plays the part of Rusty. You ever met a woman named Rusty? No. I haven't either. No. Okay. But that part originally went to Tracy Nelson, who was her co-star on the show Square Pegs. Oh, yeah. Okay. Apparently, Tracy Nelson had some sort of family difficulties back home. And when they got on set, they realized pretty quickly she needs to be back home. They called Sarah Jessica Parker and she said, great. All right. Let's flip back to Purple Rain and talk about casting for Purple Rain. So the part of the kid was to be played by Prince. Not John Travolta? Not John Travolta. Screw <laughs> you guys. I'm going home. Um, so, and the part of Morris Day, they found a guy with the exact same name who happened to know Prince. So that was lucky. Yep. <laughs> yes. And then the part of Apollonia was supposed to be played by Vanity. Vanity was Prince's girlfriend at the time. Yep. She had been involved in his rock group called Vanity Six. Yep. Who had a couple of hits. And we talked about her in a little bit of detail on our Motley Crue we Dr. Did. Feel Good episode, we did. right? There's She plays a prominent part in Nikki Six's Heroin Diaries. By the way, it didn't occur to me the whole time that I read that book. They were engaged. Had she married Nikki Six, she would have become Vanity Six. That would have been pretty cool. That would have been a little weird. <laughs> okay, so like you said, the miraculous journey that Purple Rain makes from paper to screen, it's really amazing because you finally convince a writer to come on board. Yep. You finally convince somebody to produce this thing. Prince is like, I want to be a movie star. And they're like, okay. And then as soon as you get, like, the plane is coming off the ground and we're actually going to do this, the leading lady quits. Yeah. She and Prince were obviously having a fallen out, which was a part of it. But she had had acting experience, right? She had been in a few movies. This is kind of this weird situation where this kind of bit part player is the one with the most experience out of everybody that they got that they've got there. And so she was like, I need more money than you guys are offering me. And they're like, "Uh, you're not that good. Right. And there's talk that she was supposed to play Mary Magdalene in The Last Temptation of Christ. Right. Which, I mean, yes, if you're going to go work with Martin Scorsese as opposed to the first time (laughs) director out of USC college, yeah, yes, you would go do that. But I think it was just kind of talks and then that didn't happen. So, yeah, so she missed out. Yes. And and let's not forget, she was also drug addled and crazy. Here's her quote regarding Prince and Purple Rain. Yeah. I needed one person to love me and he needed more. So now they're on the look for who's going to play the leading lady. Yeah. Right. So they audition up to 500 actresses, but this includes people like Jennifer Beals from who had done the movie Flashdance. Right. Nia Peoples, Mm -hmm. Gina Gershon. All of these people look very similar. Dark hair, dark eyes. Well, Gina Gershon. Even Gina Gershon wasn't anything at that point either. No, but she's mega hot. Yeah. She still couldn't save showgirls though. No, she couldn't. No. No, she couldn't. So they auditioned this girl named Patricia Cotero, uh-huh. who had been a L.A. Rams cheerleader. Yep. Had been in a couple of movies and, again, bit parts. Was married at the time, but was also having a pretty interesting romance with our friend David Lee Roth. 
flashback to our Van Halen episodes. Yep. And so she was bound and determined to become a movie star. But for this part, unlike everyone else who showed up in, you know, 18 inch heels and skin tight leather, she showed up in jogging pants and no makeup. I don't really understand that, but okay. Yeah. Uh, but they're like, okay, this girl's different and looks good. And so let's have her meet Prince. Her parents are both immigrants from Mexico. Uh-huh. So she's fluent in Spanish. So after her audition, Prince likes her and they fly her out to Minneapolis. Well, his bodyguard's name is Chick. He's a big guy. Yeah. He's actually in Purple Rain. You can see him a couple of times. And he goes to her and he says, he, he likes you. Like he really likes you. Yeah. And she's like, wow, you really think? I mean, is this going to happen? And he's like, well, he wants to take you out. So they go out and go dinner and dancing. And so they go to First Avenue. Uh-huh. And when they get there, guess who's there? Vanity. Vanity. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, crap. Vanity's here. What's going to happen? Is she going to freak out, go crazy? And no. Just stood there glaring from the side. So Prince was wanting to see how she was going to react, probably messing with Vanity as well. After that night out, he's like, this is my girl. I can work with this girl. Sidebar. Sidebar. So she ends up seeking out Vanity mm-hmm. to make friends with her, yeah. right? And they become friends. And at some point they get together for lunch and Vanity is like, so, you know, are you doing any more movies? What have you got going on? And she's, and Apollonia is like, oh yeah, I got the female part in this movie called The Last Dragon. And Vanity's like, <laughs> gets up, what? walks over to the phone and she's like, she can hear her screaming at somebody on the phone, comes back, sits down. And uh, as, as it turns out, she didn't have that part because Vanity, Vanity got that it. Part. Yeah. yeah. By the way, we should back up. Her name is Patricia. She went by Patty. Yeah. Patty Cotero, not quite as strong a stage name as Apollonia. Right. Apollonia, again, comes from Godfather. The Godfather. Yeah, the pretty Italian bride that Michael Corleone had that unfortunately gets blown up. (laughs) So he goes to Patty. Yeah. And he's like, I see you more as a one name type of girl. So last name, gone. We're just going to call you Apollonia. She's like, whatever you say. Sounds good. Sounds good. Let's do this. (laughs) So Apollonia 6 initially had this song that you might have heard of called Manic Monday. I listened to it on the way here today. Yes. You listened to that version? Yeah. It's a demo. Uh So it's not polished like it should be. Yeah. But the Bangles is way better. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Especially the bridge in the middle. Well, she just did an interview last month. And for the first time, she came out and said, I helped Prince write the song Manic Monday. She's got no writing credit. She's like, I never asked for it. I never wanted it. He was going to do things. He was going to fix things just before he died. 
who knows? I've gotten, a, you know, it's, it's suspicious to say the least, but it's interesting that in their interactions together, she comes up with this and that Apollonia 6 records a version of it. But she also said she's the one that turned Prince onto Susanna Hoffs for the first time. Yeah. Like she was a Susanna Hoffs fan, enjoyed her music. And of course, when he sees Susanna Hoffs, like in the video, she's wearing like this made uniform or whatever. And he's like, oh, yeah. I can work on and that so girl. That was, that was how he took that song and gave it to the Bangles. Oh, yeah, there are a couple more casting things yes. that we need to talk about. So the only actors that had acting experience in this movie are Apollonia. Yes. And the mom and the dad. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Apollonia was in a TV show that I used to love as a kid, uh-huh. but I barely remember, but it's based on Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's called Tales of a Gold Monkey. Do you remember that show? No, not a bit. So mom is played by Olga Carlatos, yep. who really hasn't been in much else. And th- But the dad, the dad is Clarence Williams III, who just last week passed away. Tragic. Yeah. But he was Link on the Mod Squad. He was the cool guy on the Mod <laughs> Squad. Uh, Lincoln, whatever his last name was, Link. Yeah. He was uh, just this just cool dude. And I got to say, his performance in this movie is Oscar worthy, in my opinion. It's really, he does such a good job with this movie. He adds the depth and the emotion and the anger and the rage that this, really the crux of the story depends on. Yeah. And the scene where he's slapping the mom around, which as a kid, of course, I saw it a thousand times because I watched the When Doves Cry video a billion times. Right, right. He's like slapping her around. Prince comes in and he shoves him to the floor. At the time, I remember thinking, man, he's really beating her up, you know? Yeah. It's just very intense acting. Yeah. Yeah, you can't actually beat the actors up. They don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's it for this week's episode, Purple Rain versus Footloose. Come back next week. Yeah, be sure right now, right now you get your phone right in front of you. You lasted this long. If you haven't, hit the little follow or subscribe button on your podcast app. Do that now so that it will automatically pop up as a little reminder to you to come join us because we love having you. That's right. We only have three weeks left on our summer of 84. After this week, next week, we're going to finish up the movie comparison, and then we're going to go track by track through both of these albums. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Join us next